You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. In each episode, we'll talk about two themes from our 2018 reading challenge, 10 to Try. Learn more about the challenge and see a list of all the categories at kcls.org slash 10 to Try. On this episode of The Desk Set, we're thinking internationally. For 10 to Try categories, read a book in translation and read a book set in a place you've never been. We'll talk to two amazing guests. First up, we chat with Kristen Hanna, New York Times bestselling author of The Nightingale and The Great Alone. After that, Megan McDowell, who was recently longlisted for the Man Booker International Prize for her heart-stopping translation of Samantha Schweblin's Fever Dream. Then, our favorite books set in places you might not have been. Plus, we explored the unique challenge of translating the magical world of Harry Potter for a global audience. Kristen Hanna is the best-selling author of The Nightingale, this year's Alaska-set family drama The Great Alone, and 20 other novels. We invited her for this episode to talk about The Great Alone and its vivid setting. We haven't been to Alaska, but The Nightingale is being made into a movie, so that novel counts for the movie or TV adaptation category, too. Kristen's also a UW grad and a resident of the Pacific Northwest, and we were thrilled to talk to her about her books, relationships between women, and The Great Alone's larger-than-life setting. I'm Kristen Hanna. And I, I guess I'm a recovering attorney turned uh, full-time novelist. I've written over 20 novels, and my latest, uh, The Great Alone, is actually in bookstores right now. So The Great Alone is your first novel since uh, your hugely successful World War II novel, The Nightingale, which is being made into a movie and was on all kinds of end-of-the-year best list and was a big bestseller. Did having a runaway bestseller like that change your writing experience? You know, I don't know that it changed my writing experience so much, but it was definitely sort of uh, a lot to deal with. And I guess I wasn't quite expecting the changes that come, you know, with having uh, such a, a big success, you know, so long into your career. And, um, you know, it took me a while to kind of get my footing again and, and stop trying to either repeat the Nightingale or, you know, um, write that kind of book again and just sort of realize and remember who I am as a writer and to, to do what it is I do best. And that is to, you know, write emotional female driven stories that I want to read. So speaking of emotional female-driven stories, the relationship between the teenage protagonist of The Great Alone, Lenny, and her mother, Cora, is sort of at the heart of the story. It's one of the major driving forces. And that's, like you said, that's true of many of your other novels as well. Relationships between mothers and daughters, relationships between sisters, relationships between female friends. What makes those relationships interesting to you? Well, obviously, you know, I am a woman, which, um, you know, gives me sort of that perspective on life in general. I'm also a mother, a daughter, a sister. And, you know, I guess it probably started back with a book called Winter Garden, where I started sort of getting the sense that that women's stories were being lost or were going unheard. And, um, 
I really wanted to sort of explore history from a female perspective and, you know, talk perhaps less about what the battles were or, you know, what was going on in the big geopolitical sense and focus a little bit more on ordinary women trying to survive extraordinary times. And, you know, the Nightingale was was sort of an obvious expression of that because it is, you know, the women of World War II France. And so we all have kind of a collective sense of what was going on then. But I have found, you know, in speaking to readers and in hearing from, you know, people who survived that time and place that that too many women's stories, you know, had been lost. And so, you know, it felt really good to sort of put women in the foreground there. And then in The Great Alone, it's perhaps a little less obvious because it's Alaska in the 1970s. But it really comes down to, again, you know, this community of women and especially this mother-daughter who find themselves trying to survive not only the harshness of the climate and, um, and the difficulties of living off the grid and completely remotely, um, but also having to deal with, you know, this, um, the man in their life, uh, the father and, and husband, who becomes sort of increasingly unhinged and dangerous um, as he gets deeper and deeper into the darkness of the Alaska winter. So speaking of the Alaska winter, the wilderness is really almost a character in The Great Alone. It's very uh, present for the characters all the time. How did you go about creating such a vivid setting? Well, the truth is, you know, Alaska is part of the fabric of my life. Um, My family owns a a sport fishing and adventure lodge in Alaska and has since the early 80s. And we've been going up there as a family forever. And, you know, three generations of my family have worked at the lodge. And so I have a real affinity for Alaska and I love it. And I really, you know, when you go up to Alaska, you definitely have this sense that you are in this expansive, remarkable, almost otherworldly kind of place. And so I really wanted to bring um, to people my vision of Alaska and what I see up there and the kind of people that I meet up there because they are, you know, unusual and uh, remarkable, the kind of people who can live in that kind of an environment, especially the women. Speaking of those women, there is like this whole community of colorful characters that surrounds the Albrights. There's all those women you talked about, the general store owner, Large Marge, and the school teacher, Tika, as well as some other men, um, including the conspiracy theorist, Matt Earl, who sort of stood out to me as this really vivid character. Do you have a favorite or a character who was either like the most fun or the most difficult to write? Well, the most difficult to write, obviously, was Ernst, the father, um, because, you know, there was a lot to say about him and, and he goes through quite a metamorphosis and he's a very difficult character. He's, you know, suffering from undiagnosed, untreated PTSD at a time when, you know, veterans were not treated very well. 
And so he was very difficult. He was so dark. He was so dangerous. He was so explosive. And, you know, you put him in this, this dark, confined space, and it felt very much like, you know, writing about sort of a wild animal. So he was definitely the most difficult to write. Uh, absolutely the most fun character to write was Large Marge uh, because she really embodies sort of um, all of my feelings about Alaska women. You know, they're tough, they're independent, they protect each other, they help each other, they can do almost anything. And I love sort of their resourcefulness and their sense of community and and one of the interesting things about the sort of colorful characters who inhabit Alaska in real life is they do come from a variety of backgrounds. You know, you might be talking to someone who lives in a school bus on the side of the road and used to be, you know, a professor at MIT. You just never know who you're going to find there or what their backstory is. And so that made uh, Large Marge really fun to sort of uh, create. So it sounds like there are lots of other Alaska-inspired stories sort of hanging around in the background. Do you think you'll write about Alaska again? I would like to. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge state, and I touched on, you know, a very limited time period in its history and a very limited um, amount of sort of landscape, you know, there's still all of the really deep, deep wilds of Alaska still to go. So I wouldn't be surprised if I came back. Can I ask you the, what I feel like is the worst question to ask a writer? What are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Uh, yes, I was actually just working on it when, um, when you called. So I, I'm writing another story about, uh, powerful women, um, you know, women who find the ability to sort of become extraordinary while living their ordinary lives. And it's set against um, a very tumultuous and difficult uh, time period in American history. But I guess that's about all I can say right now. One of the things that I really liked about The Great Alone is you know, the 70s are not that far away, and yet there's this huge sense of remove, not only geographically, but there's a scene early on where they go, um, and Cora's trying to get a credit card, and she can't apply for a credit card without her husband or father's permission. So all of these little details that aren't sort of central to the story are just such a vivid reminder of how much life has changed for women, even in the last 35 or 40 years. You know, and that's, that's interesting. You would say that because, you know, it sort of happens that, you know, I'm writing about this, the evolution of women's rights, whether it's from the credit card or how women are treated in domestic abuse, how the law treats women, you know, all these kind of little issues that make up the whole of the great alone and it sort of comes out at a moment where, where it seems that the, the world is focusing on this, that we're actually looking at, you know, whether it's the Me Too movement or, you know, women in the workplace, just this idea that, that we still have a ways to go. You know, yes, we've come a long ways, you know, from the 70s, um, but we still have a long ways to go. 
Uh, so the other question that I always like to ask is, what are you reading now? I am currently reading Kate Morton's The Clockmaker's Daughter. It's great. I love Kate Morton. She's um, a historical novelist from uh, Australia, and I just love her stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one as well. Any other recent favorites that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I just got the ARC for the new Greg Hurwitz. Um, I'm, unfortunately, I can't remember the title, but I love his stuff. He wrote uh, Orphan X and the Nowhere Man, and I'm a real fan of his. And the next book on my reading pile is um, Robert, the new Robert Galbraith, which I also love. I, I read a wide range from thrillers to historical fiction, literary fiction. I'll read just about anything. Megan McDowell is a Man Booker-nominated translator who works primarily with living Latin American and Spanish writers. She's a Kentucky native who now lives in Chile. Her translations have been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, McSweeney's, and more, and we were delighted to talk to her about the fascinating work of translation. My name is Megan McDowell. I am a literary translator. I am from the United States, from Kentucky, and I live in Santiago, Chile. So a lot of my authors are from Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and almost all of them are alive. I work almost always with con contemporary writers. So can you tell us how you ended up with a career in translation? How did you become interested in it, and how did you decide to make it your profession? I, I studied English literature, and at a certain point I realized that what I was reading for my degree and what I was reading for fun weren't really the same things. I was much more interested in literature that came from other countries. After I graduated, I got a year-long fellowship at a publisher called Dalkey Archive Press. And I spent a year working there. And that was kind of my education in tran translated literature. They, they focus on experimental fiction and literature and translation. And, and I loved it. And I kind of wanted to stay working in publishing. That, and that, that, that's what I was interested in at first, was publishing, specifically translation. And then I interviewed to get a full-time position at Dalkey Archive. They didn't hire me. And they, the reason that they didn't hire me was because I didn't speak another language. So I got it in my head that if I learned another language, it would be easier for me to get a job in publishing, which is just patently false. But it inspired me to save up some money and move to Chile. And, and that's what I did. I spent three years in Chile learning Spanish, and I, I spent a year here working as a translator. And then I decided to go back to grad school. And, I, and by that point, I had decided that I wanted to be a translator. So I went and got a, a master's degree in literary translation. And that's how it happened. So you didn't learn to speak and read and write Spanish until after you had graduated from college? Right. Yeah, I was about, I was about 24 when I moved to Chile. And, you know, I had, I had a basic understanding of Spanish. I could conjugate verbs and that kind of thing, but I really didn't. I never, I couldn't have a conversation when I first moved here. There's an idea in Fever Dream um, about rescue distance. 
that um, which is the distance that the narrator can be from her young daughter and still be able to get to her in time to save mm-hmm. her, basically. So I read an interview with you in the Paris Review where you said that's a phrase in Spanish. And in fact, it's the Spanish title of the book, but it's not a phrase in English. How do you approach those instances where an idea isn't, it's not just the language that isn't shared, but it's an idea that's not shared between the original language and the language that you're translating a work into? Hmm. With the title, we we went back and forth a lot on that. The thing is that the concept isn't exactly, it's not like a widely used concept. It's not something that you hear every day. And I also mm-hmm. think that it's not, while we don't necessarily have that phrase or that idea in English, it's not a difficult one to get across. Like it's right there in the phrase, rescue distance. I don't think it was that difficult in the book, but um, we didn't think it really worked as a title. And so we went back and forth about about what to call it. And I and it's interesting because Fever Dream really has made a difference in how people read the book. Like if you, if you read a lot of reviews, people always talk about the title. Um, and I think I think that's really interesting because that that's something that only exists in English. Um, and people often oftentimes talk about the otherworldly nature of it. They don't know how much of it is supposed to be real and not real. Whereas when I read it in Spanish, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I thought of it all as real within the world of the book. Right? There are things that are that are difficult in translation. The things that I've had the most difficulty with are kind of plays with words, tongue twisters. Um, poems, things that need to rhyme, those kinds of things. In terms of concepts, a lot of times what I, a lot of times I can work in a definition into the text and make it sound natural. (laughs) And that's, that's part of the good thing about generally working with my writers, because I feel I have a lot more freedom. You know, I can say, I need to explain this. Are you okay with this? And most of the time they are. That's really important to me. And and that's something that has changed over my career. When I first started out, I was very reticent and reluctant to ask questions or, you know, to to be unsure about anything. Like I, I felt like I needed to know everything. And now I, I really want to talk to the writer and, you know, tell them these are the problems that I'm I'm having and ask questions. And a lot of times it helps me to just to listen to the writer talk about the book, even if they're not necessarily directly addressing any of my questions. Like it just helps to hear background and, and, and to hear the cadence of their voice even. And there, there are a lot of things that I've done, you know, when, when the writer is working with you, it's a lot easier to address the translation as like an editing process. Like you can, you can make suggestions and things that, you don't necessarily have to approach the text as if it were in written in stone. You know, you can say this problem arose, this is how I'd like to solve it. And, you know, you can kind of work through it. There's one book that I translated by Alejandro the, that's called Multiple Choice that is based on a multiple choice test. And a lot of it, there are are multiple choice questions and a lot of them, especially in the beginning had a lot of wordplay and double meanings. And also there are a lot of cultural references. So with that book, we kind of rewrote it, you know, like we took the idea of the original book and the 
a lot of the themes and and ideas and images, but we redid it in English, if that makes sense. So we we use the resources that are available in in English. So we made, we kind of played with things like phrasal verbs or rhyming or or certain sayings, and we 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 even changed some of the cultural references. And that's something that obviously I would not feel nearly as comfortable doing if I weren't doing it kind of in collaboration with Alejandro. And in that way, do you conceptualize your work as creating an original work or like how much freedom and distance do you feel like you can sort of wander away from that uh, source yeah. material? Yeah, I mean, that is the question, you know, that's it's not an easy question to answer. Um, like, where does the where does the line lie between translation and interpretation or aversion? You know, like that's that's always a question. And you're always kind of walking this kind of tightrope between fidelity and, I don't know, creativity, I guess. I mean, any translator will tell you that it has to work in English. So I've never used footnotes to explain things like I'm I'm 100 percent against it. So. And it's kind of a cop out for me to say, well, I work with the writer and I make suggestions, you know, because I have this idea that if the writer says it's okay, then it's okay. (laughs) But, you know, maybe someone would look at what I do and say, oh, that's not a translation or that's a mistake. You know, how could she do that? You know, translation is definitely a creative practice. It, It does have something, it does have a large creative aspect to it. And also a large critical aspect to it. You know, I think there's no one answer to your question. I think it's like, it's something that is like a tug of war through the whole translation process. And in that tension between sort of fidelity and maybe creating understanding for your reader, is there one that you you place first or prize? Um, Yeah, I I would definitely prioritize the, the... experience of the reader you know if like I I don't necessarily want to take the reader out of the text in order to explain something in order to be faithful to the original it's not just saying like cat is gato gato is cat you know it's more getting into the text and thinking about I mean the same way a writer has to think what would this character say the translator also has to think what would this character say especially when it comes to dialogue and and you have to think more in, in terms of the of the tone and to the guiding idea of the book. So speaking of tone and guiding ideas, I discovered your work when I read Fever Dream, uh, which, as far as tone goes, is so um, gripping and uh, it just sort of swallows you whole. Um, I read it in a single sitting. I don't think I could have put it down even if I had wanted to. What was it like to live with that kind of really intense, haunting work for a long period of time right. while you're doing the well, work of translation? I love that book. I also, when they, yeah, I sat down and read it in one night also. You know, I had other things I was supposed to be doing and I did not do them. <laughs> it's really great to translate a book that you love because you have to spend a lot of time with it and you have to read it over and over and over again. And that book doesn't get old. So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, I did have a nightmare or two while I was working on it. I I don't know. I I think the the pleasure of the, of the book definitely wins out. You know, it's it's just a pleasure to be to spend time 
in a world that's so well creative and so well created and so um engrossing and is there anything you're reading now that you're really enjoying do you get to read for pleasure or are you just reading so much for work that when you're not working you want to do something no I still I I don't read as much as I should but um I I I have a day job and that kind of keeps me from reading as much as I'd like because I I work a lot but I always try to read a little bit every night so I'm always reading something and I do try to read a book in English and a book in Spanish. So the Spanish is kind of, it tends to be more research, you know, to see if it's something interesting. And the English is kind of to keep me thinking in, in English. And uh, let's see, right now I'm reading The Blazing World by Siri Hustvedt. I honestly don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and that book is kind of rocking my world. I really love it. And I'm reading the Man- Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin, which is really interesting for me. She, I mean, she writes in English, but you know, she spent some time in Chile. So I feel, and the, her stories are so so good. And in Spanish, I just finished a book by Sara Mesa, who is a, a Spanish writer. Um, who I have liked for just a really long time. I loved her first book and really wanted to do it. But um, this book is called Cara de Pan, and and it's also excellent. And I think that's all I'm reading right now. And when you close these books at night on your bedside and fall asleep, do you dream more in English or in Spanish lately? Um, it's interesting you ask that. I just last night had a um, <laughs> an anxiety dream <laughs> where I had to give a speech in Spanish, and and I couldn't read what I had written down. I think that I think I have those kinds of dreams sometimes where I should be able to speak Spanish and I can't. Um, and sometimes, and other other than that, I'd say it's it's most more English than Spanish and and then maybe about 20% in just a regular Spanish that's not anxiety dreams <laughs> is there something you wish that readers understood about translation or the process or the work that goes into it that you think is misunderstood hmm. something that is misunderstood oh that that's a difficult question because it's true that I I don't think anyone really understands what translation is. Like they think it's you sit down and, you know, you read a line and you type that line. and You read the next line and you type that line. But there's a lot more that goes into it than that. It's, you know, this goes back to what I was saying before. It's like a creative, it, there's, a, there's a creative process behind it. And it also has a lot in common with, with the editorial process. So, you know, once I get a text in English, I work on it the same way any editor would work on it. And, you know, I, I kind of think about it, think about how, how I can make it work in English. Um, and it's a complicated process, but there's really no way to explain that process unless someone just sits beside me and watches me do it. You know, it's hard to explain what goes in, into translation. I, I don't think 
anyone really knows what, what goes into it except for translators. But I do think, I mean, this isn't really answering your question, but, but I do think that people are more and more interested in translation as a, as an art form and as a practice and people are more interested in reading books and translation. So the next time somebody asks me that question, I'm going to have a better answer for it. Hearing about that process of translating a book from English to Spanish or vice versa made me think about um, books that get translated into lots of languages all over the world, but also come with their own special language that then has to be translated. I'm thinking of Harry Potter. Yeah, and there are some interesting examples of what that translation looked like depending on the audience. So a lot of people know that there's a difference between the British UK version of the book title and the one that appears in English. You know what it is? Yeah, so the American one is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. That's book one. And in the UK, it's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Exactly correct. And there are lots of tiny changes between, even though they like share a common language of English, the American and UK versions. So that's something that's called localization. And it's done just so that people and the audiences and other places have like a really familiar reading experience. Um, so maybe mom becomes mom or football is soccer and jumpers or sweaters. I didn't know that a torch is a flashlight. <laughs> And those are pretty easy to do, but Harry Potter's got all of these, like, unique, fantastical words that are much trickier to translate into other languages. Um, but you've got a fun example of a French word, right? I read part of the French version, and one of my favorite things that I discovered in that process was that the sorting hat in French is called the chapeau, which is a portmanteau of the French word for choice, choix, with the French word for hat, chapeau. That's adorable. Isn't that cute? Also, the French term baguette magique literally means magic stick, so that's what they call a wand. But if you're anything like me, it conjures <laughs> images of young wizards dueling with bread. I can totally picture that. Yeah, and there's lots of different words in the books that are like describing magical creatures. And um, some examples of that, like a boggart in Portuguese is called semforma, which means without shape. But in Ukrainian, they call it huchik, which means one who hides. In Chinese, the translation of quaffle is flying ghost ball, and the terrifying Czechoslovakian term for a dementor means brain plague. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so another thing, one of my favorite fun facts, uh, was that when they were translating different products from the Weasley's Joke Shop into new languages, the constipating product, You Know Poo, has a Finnish title that means the poo that shall not come. <laughs> so that's clearly a play on Lord Voldemort's unmentionability. Incredible. Speaking of play, it's a challenge to translate wordplay. Yeah, and so um, in the book there's something called, is it the Mirror of Erised? I think that's how it's pronounced, yeah. Which is the backwards word for desire, so translators made up their own new backwards words in their own languages. Another thing that's interesting is that um, the spells in Harry Potter in English take their names from Latin roots, which makes sense because English is primarily derived from Latin. Mm -hmm. But in the Hindi versions of the books, the spells are inspired by Sanskrit, so it creates a similar effect for readers. That's so cool. 
And it's not just words that change. Sometimes characters' names change, right? Sure. So in Italian, Dumbledore's last name becomes Silente, which feels sort of stern and serious. On the other end, in Norwegian, you get Albus Hummelsner, which means dizzy or tipsy bumblebee. Regardless of what you call him, I think we're both inclined to agree with his oft-quoted words of wisdom that words themselves are our most inexhaustible source of magic. As Megan mentioned, more and more people are interested in reading books in translation, but if you've ever searched the library catalog trying to find a translated work, you know it's not always easy to tell if a book has been translated from another language or not. The same is true for books set in a place you've never been. There's no one list that will work for everyone. Luckily, the library is here to help. Use Bookmatch to get a list of personalized recommendations created just for you by a librarian. Visit kcls.org bookmatch to get started. So speaking of staff recommendations, do you have any suggestions for us, Emily? Sure. Um, I picked out two that are set in places that I've never been, so these may or may not work for our listeners. The first is Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Necht. This is a little spy novel about a young woman working for the CIA in the 1960s, and it's set in Buenos Aires, which is a place that I hadn't even really thought about beyond uh, Evita, which I listened to a lot as a child. But it gives you a really wonderful sense of that city in this time period, these sweeping boulevards and these big colonial buildings, but also the sense of unrest that was happening there. The novel follows Vera Kelly as she plants wireless bugs in government buildings and infiltrates a group of students that the CIA thinks are KGB sympathizers. That plot is interspersed with flashbacks from her previous life. She falls in love with her best friend, she's kicked out of her house in a fancy D.C. suburb, and she moves to New York, where she tentatively starts going to queer bars and working for a radio station, which leads to her recruitment by the CIA. This is not your typical spy novel. It's got action and intrigue, but it's really a character study of this young woman sort of discovering who she is and of the city at a time period that might not be familiar to you. So again, that's Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Necht. And my second pick for A Place I've Never Been is Queen Sugar by Natalie Bazil. You might know this one. It's inspired the TV series that's on Oprah's own network. Uh, It wrapped up its third season earlier this year. I haven't seen the TV show, but the book is wonderful. It's the story of Charlie. She's a young African-American woman who finds out after her father dies that she's inherited 800 acres of sugarcane. She has no farming experience. She's lived in L.A. her whole life. Um, But the only way for her to claim the inheritance is to farm the land. So she and her daughter Micah move to rural Louisiana, where her father grew up, to try their hand at farming cane. There's a great essay by Natalie on BuzzFeed where she writes about a road trip she took through rural Louisiana to scatter her father's ashes. So here's a quote from that. I love the heat and the crumbling buildings overtaken by kudzu. I love the endless hours my aunts, uncles, and cousins spent in church. I loved Louisiana's earthiness, her accents, and her twisting bayous. I loved it all. That love is woven throughout Queen Sugar. Rural Louisiana and a big cast of characters come to life through Natalie's lyrical writing. When I finished Queen Sugar, I immediately started dreaming of a trip to see the crawfish farms, the storefront churches, the small town festivals, and most of all, the sugarcane fields that are the heart of this lovely novel. How about you? Do you have some travel recommendations? 
Yeah, so I've also got a few picks for books that'll take you places you've probably never been before. Uh, the first one is The Geography of Bliss. It's a book that took me to Qatar and Bataan alongside author Eric Weiner. He's a former foreign correspondent for NPR, and he starts his journey with this trip to an institute in the Netherlands that's trying to quantify happiness the same way we do gross domestic product. Huh. So then using that research, he travels to destinations like Iceland and Moldova, some of the happiest and unhappiest, respectively. And he's trying to figure out what is it about these cultures and their politics and their policies that make people happy. So the book blends travel memoir with science and psychology, lots of humor, and it makes a great read to tuck in your travel bag. Sounds great. And the next book I'm going to suggest is a place that, like, most likely none of you have ever been. It's about North Korea, and it's a graphic novel called Pyongyang. And so the author is a French animator, Guy Delisle, and he had this rare opportunity to travel to North Korea while he was on a work visa. And North Korea is mysterious and secretive, and this firsthand account offers a more intimate glimpse than many of us have ever seen. So even though Guy can't explore without his mandated translator and guide, he still manages to observe more about the culture and conditions of the country the government probably wanted him to. And so there are these beautiful sketches of the capital city, statues of dictators and propaganda, and it's both grim and illuminating. I love his work. I haven't read Pyongyang, but I've read some of his others. And it's such a his work is so stylish, and mm -hmm. then it manages to capture, even in the simplified lines, the feeling of the place that he's been. So if all this talk of translated books and travel has you interested in learning a new language, you should check out Mango. Have you tried Mango, Britta? I totally have. I used it the last time I was taking a trip to Paris to get ready for that trip, and it's got these great conversational lessons. I was able to, like, navigate the metro, visit museums, order at cafes, all without embarrassing myself. So my accent still needs some work, but the conversational lessons I picked up totally helped. Nice. And you can use it both on your desktop and on your phone, right? There's an app. Yeah. And there's 70 languages to choose from. So that's incredible. You have like a trip coming up or just like a New Year's resolution to learn a new language. Definitely check it out. And you can do that at kcls.org slash mango. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.